This is Full Coffers with your host, Phil and Tony Bugs from Abundant Harvest Christian Fellowship Ministries. And this week on Full Coffers, The Journey, Part 3. Well, we are back again talking about our journey. Um, you're probably wondering, why are these people telling us all this stuff about their lives? And Inquiring minds <laughs> want to know. You know, it's we're not any famous stars or we're just everyday people. But what we're hoping, what we're hoping is that something that we say or have experienced in life, someone out there can say, you know what, I experienced that too. And so you don't feel so alone. You don't feel so weird about it. We're going to tell you everything. And I bet that at least one, possibly two situations we've had in life, you're going to be able to identify with. What we want to do is fill your coffers with valuable information. And the best way that we know how to do that is just kind of tell our story. So the last time we left you off, we were uh, talking about how I was able to finally reveal the situation going on in my home um, with my parents on domestic violence. We are now in the summer of 1980. I am 16 and a half years old. 16 and a half years old. <laughs> and I am actually working my first job ever because I'm preparing for my senior year in high school. And when you have a, a mother that uh, makes less than $10,000 a year and have to support three people, makes it a little difficult for her to kind of help out with senior year. So I was able to get my first job and start saving for my senior year. And Philip, I believe you had a job as well. Well, my job was getting good grades in school at the time. <laughs> um, but when I would come home for the summer, uh, I would have a summer job. And um, back then it was working at Borden Milk mm, yeah. Plant on, on Stevenson Highway in uh, Troy, Michigan. Not that it really makes a difference. It does. It's, it helps me get the mental picture. Of... I get the mental picture of that sour milk smell <laughs> and those nasty boots. But but the interesting thing about that was that I I worked those summer jobs, <clears throat> but what it taught me was why I needed to make good grades in school. Um, obviously, it was hard work. Um, I was in pretty good shape back then when you're unloading trailers of, of empty crates that milk would go in and you spend eight hours doing that. Um, it you look pretty to... doggone good. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I, I was just a hard worker. But to the point that I worked around a lot of gr very grown men. And um, it was interesting just to see how their lives had turned out. And here I was at the beginning of my life, um, um, but I was looking, trying to make um, an impact in terms of just doing my part of working and not being a burden on my parents. But those summer jobs taught me a lot. I think one of the main lessons it taught me was manual labor is not something that I wanted to do. <laughs> so I better learn something in school or I could be uh, one of those fellas that goes into work at four in the afternoon uh, it might be 80, 85 degrees outside, but they go into a milk plant and uh, standing temperature is 35 to 40 degrees. And if you're in a freezer, it's even colder. Um, and cleaning up soured milk um, for eight hours a day is no fun. Mm. So so it just taught me. It, it, it built a lot of character. Um, but that was my, those were my summer jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And normally 
when we got to the, the fall or the end of the summer, I would always have this sadness. But this year, I wasn't sad. Why? Because <laughs> I was a senior, <laughs> class of 81. And I was just so excited because even, I, I hadn't even gotten through my senior year yet. I'm already contemplating, I'm going to go to college, and I'm going to probably be close to Philip, and we can see each other every day. So I had a whole lot to hang on to. So Enjoying my senior year was just just awesome because of the future plans that um, I was making in my head, so I thought. Um, however, Philip uh, wasn't experiencing um, good things going back uh, into wow. his sophomore year. Yes, that, that's true. By this time, it was 1980, and um, I was uh, at Western Michigan, and um, two years into what the course handbooks told you was going to be a four-year degree program. Um, I had switched my majors, and I haven't talked about any of this, Um, but I think that what I will share in this is that I had an idea of what I wanted to do when I got out of high school. Uh, Well, things changed, and that taught me in life that Uh, Life doesn't work on a plan A. You have to have a plan B and sometimes a C, D. C. (laughs) (laughs) Minus one. (laughs) What happened, my plan A, I put all my my, my, um, apples or my eggs in plan A, and 12B of high school, um, those plans changed. I started wearing glasses, and the very major I wanted to pursue um, required to have uncorrected 20-20 vision. So I went to college having to uh, change my plans real quick and uh, ended up in a major that I knew absolutely nothing about. Um, And what that caused me to do was it caused me not um, not to apply myself as hard because it was, I, I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to fly jets and I started wearing glasses and, um, I couldn't do that no more. So now I'm scrambling, and all I know, oh, I'll go into mechanical engineering. Well, I knew nobody who was a mechanical engineer. And um, that eventually, over those two years, caused my grades to drop because I learned this saying, interest precedes learning. Oh, yeah. Which basically means if you're not interested in it, you ain't (laughs) learning it. So the classes that I took according to what the... Um, course outline handbook told me um, guidance counselors oh, they were practically non-existence or at least in Phil's world because I just figure you just follow what they tell you and it should work that's a yeah that's, that's, yeah. A, good, that's well, a good assumption uh, <laughs> well when you take economics uh, western history um, drafting and some other hard course and it ends up being like 14 credits. You're crazy. I didn't know that, but <laughs> all the indicators pointed that way. But I just figured I could do it. Well, I I miserably, uh, my grade points started dropping and dropping and dropping. And actually, by the end of 1980, uh, my grade point, which was uh, 2-9 starting when I got into college, that last semester, and I'm kind of tipping the, my, my hand here, that last semester, I think my grade point was point oh seven three or something <laughs> like that. I know that ain't funny. <laughs> I can laugh at it now, 
Um, but back then, it was a devastating blow to me. Um, my grade point had dropped down below 2.0, and of course, you get the academic probation thing. And then, like I said, that last semester when I took those horrible classes, because in my world, I'm saying, oh, I'll just take these classes and I'll boost my grade point up. And I bombed out that last semester. Uh, that hoping that I would um, they, I would slide under the radar. Um, I had gone home Christmas of 1980 uh, knowing that my grade point was that low and I was already on academic probation. Um, right around the Christmas time, and, and I get the letter in the mail that says those dreaded words, you are academically dismissed mm. from college. Um, that was a devast. That was a. I'm going to use the word devastating blow. Uh, that hurt me. It hurt me tremendously. Um, obviously, um, I had an older sister and brother uh, who were doing well. My sister had gone, and I think she had graduated from U of M already. And my brother was doing well at a um, a electronic school, and he had gotten a job and. And here I was, flunked out of college. And uh, I want to take you back just a little bit okay. prior to take me back. the actual letter. You, based upon the letters that you were writing home to me, um, were, was actually going through a lot emotionally. And in fact, one of the letters you opened up, I opened up, and it, it started literally the first paragraph, I'm depressed. Yes, it did say that, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it did. <laughs> and I must admit, that was the first time, you know, even though we only been together a couple of years, but that's the first time I've ever heard you use that term, I'm depressed. And we're talking, this is back in 1980. Right. Now, of course, we're, we're talking about a topic that has been um, addressed or talked about or, or handled a lot differently um, now in 2020 than it was in 1980. Uh, if I put some more layers on that, being a, a Christian, you know, Christians don't get depressed. That's what they say. That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad because I swamped that test. <laughs> Back then, I didn't know the truths that, that, those, that the Bible, that the scriptures would tell us that I was living in false reality. I was trying to strive for something that was unrealistic, to ignore feelings when it's like when you get gut punched and you don't say, ooh, you know, it hurts. And I think that at that time I was very pious, very um, zealot, very driven to be the best Christian there was. Yet life was kicking my tail left Oop. and right. <laughs> I can speak, um, I say healthy about it because I am, I am even more in love with Christ now. Um, but it's because of those experiences that, that, that the scriptures taught me and, and my relationship with, with Christ grew deeper. And he walked with me through those dark encounters and he explained to me that my understanding of scripture was flawed and I had to learn what he meant in certain passages. Now, of course, this is um, 59-year-old Field talking about 20-year-old Field as if I'm right there, but there was a growth 
that had to happen between that time. So, so for, for me, that experience of, of, of experiencing um, failure is something that I didn't read in Scripture, if I say it like that. I only, I only read of the, the, the victories of being a Christian and that you just have to have faith and yeah. things will work out. Well, I do have faith. And things still didn't work out, so I thought. Mm-hmm. But I had to re—I had to readjust my understanding of failure, and my definition and my understanding of success. They both were flawed, and as a result, I was living in a world of 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 through. It wasn't clear. Right. I didn't really get the true picture of having faith in God and living the life that he purposed for me. And I'm, 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 while I'm going a bit biblical here, this is still Phil living in a real world, being academically dismissed from a, uh, a good college in Michigan. I think I said it, I, I was going to Western and I had to come home and telling my parents that I flunked out of college was probably at that point one of the most depressing or hardest things that I had to do. But there was no running away from it. I had to come home. And so with that, it was so interesting that, and I haven't talked about my parents during this journey a whole lot, but my mother is a very devout uh, Christian, if I say woman. Um, And my father was a a good man whose faith grew um, as I got older. Um, Mama's faith, I have a tall caller, Mama, was very evident early on, and she required just strict, strict is a wrong word. She, she was very devout, and she... She required commitment. Yes, that, uh, thank, thank you for that. She required that commitment. And we tried to live that at first it was because that's our parents told us to but eventually it transferred to us and God required it as well well when failures happen how are we to respond and I think that one of the beautiful things one of many that my mother did for me when that happened because I just knew she was going to just blow a gasket when I told her what I told her. But the words that came out of her mouth was very similar to, and, and I, I can tell that later. <laughs> no, I'll tell it now. It, it was an encounter that the prophet Elijah had with God when he just got through um, defeating um, Jezebel's prophets and had, oh, had done wow. those things. You're going old school on us. <laughs> I, I, I am, but it was interesting because that's what I that's what God taught me later on about depression. When Elijah ran away from her, Elijah found himself in a very lonely place, thinking that he was all alone and that he was about to get killed. And it was interesting that God never responded to Elijah's complaints. My mother never responded to my complaints. She told me, I want you to get up Monday morning, apply for college at your community college, Wayne County, and afterwards, I want you to go down to the church and volunteer. I don't care what they say for you to do, do it. 
That's what I want you to do. My mother, my parents never allowed me to wallow in my in self-pity. They required me to get up and do something. And, and that's what I did. I went to apply for Wayne County Community College, took classes. I took almost 15 credits, and I couldn't pass with nine credits or 12 credits from Western. Crazy thing was, that semester in 81, I had a 3.95 grade point average. Amazing. And now I'm really confused. One school says I'm dumb as a dead log. This other school is telling me they want to put me on the dean's list. I am confused. I don't know what's going on in my life, but I know that I have to keep living. So so for me, that encounter of experiencing defeat, failure, but also experiencing tremendous love of my parents who supported me and didn't allow me to stay down in the dumps. They required me to get up and work. And um, by the way, um, volunteering down at the church, let me think, I, I painted two or three of the members' houses. Uh, there were parking, those concrete parking blocks. Me and another guy would pick them up from a cement company and then bring them over and put them down. Now, how in the world? I just had too much time on my hand or, <laughs> or muscles or something because we did that without a crane or anything. We loaded them on a pickup truck, took them off. But I'm saying that to say I had to keep busy. And that is what I did. I just kept busy. And that is one of the things that I know that has helped me is that when I get down, the best thing for me is to find something to help someone else. And isn't that amazing that your mother wasn't a clinical psychologist and uh, she had the best advice, which it still carries well today. You know, I understand that we live in a world where people have to take medications sometimes to kind of get focused. And we're going to have a whole segment at some point about mental illness. Sure. However, there are some of us who are stronger that don't necessarily need medication, but maybe just an encouraging word um, for those who are Christians, hearing from God, let, he's letting you know, I still love you. I knew this was going to happen. I've prepared you to go through this, even though it may not seem like it. But that's just the beauty of it all. He knows our, as they say, our steps that we're going to take. And he knew that your mother would be that person that would encourage you to not, again, like you said, wallow in your, have pity parties. Because, you know, at 20 years old, you're like, what am I going to do now? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and in conjunction to her telling you to go back to school and to volunteer, there was something else that she was led to do that impacted your life for a long time. Man, don't you remember? No, you you got to give me she some She looked clues. out a window. Ah. Man. Yes, she did. I didn't know you were getting there, but but yes, I was on this trek of just trying to bring up my grades because that's all I knew. And I was on the course of doing that during the end of 81. Um, and around, it was, it was around the, about the mid, um, my mother looked out of this one. She was, she cleaned houses for a living. Um, and she was working in Highland Park and she was um, looking out the window. Um, and she noticed these people coming out of this Excello building over on, 
on Hamilton and Oakman. And and she called home, and I was home, and she says, hey, find out what's happening over there. Well, I found out that they were actually accepting applications for this new CETA program that was getting minorities um, um, interested in the skilled trades. And even though I'm saying that now, I really didn't know what it was. But um, she said, go fill out. Let's see what's going on. So for the next six months, um, and literally it was that much, I filled out applications. I took tests. There was over, and I found out later, it was over 4,000 people that applied for 60 positions. And remember, we're talking 80, 81 when there was a recession going yes, on. Yes, exactly. A lot of the um, auto dealer, the factory workers, they were being laid off because they had a, the gas shortage. We had the, the downsizing of the cars. And that was going on in the motor capital city. And um, what came out of that was... 60 positions to start this program at this civil rights organization um, founded out of the 67, 68 riots called Focus Hope. They started a program called Focus Hope Skilled Machinist Training Program. And its goal was to, in nine months, train people, workers or machinists. It's not workers. They would be machinists who would then go and work in job shops. Um, I have to bring this in because prior to my introduction um, into even being considered, I didn't know anything about skilled trades. Um, in I, fact, really, the skilled trades was kind of looked down <laughs> upon. It's like, oh, you, if you can't get in college, you better go to a trade school. That's, <laughs> and unfortunately, that same mantra is being, is being repeated now, and it's amazing. But that, that program was geared to uh, train uh, people, uh, underemployed and unemployed people to become machinists. And um, won't get heavily into that, but if I give a 15-second, machinists are those tool makers who make the tools, who make the machines that make the garments, everything that are Chase sold. the cat that put the rat out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> you all could probably, I'm the comic relief, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But no, no, no. But but th- but it's it's that is what they do. They are the backbone of the manufacturing um, engine of this nation. And so, um, come November of '81, um, I actually was accepted into that program to become a skilled machinist in nine months. Now I'm going to pause right there because actually, during that time, uh, in a different part of my life, or say our lives, Tony's life was changing as well. And in fact, our relationship as boyfriend-girlfriend had started to take some changes as well. It was starting to be strained. Um, We had been going together almost three years now. Almost, yeah. And um, the problems we were starting to have didn't have as much to do with us not drawing closer in fact, it was the wanting to be closer that was causing more strain on the way the relationship was presently. I mean, we had, um, I, I had graduated from high school. I went to um, summer school. I had to, one of the requirements of going to the university that I went to, I had to go to summer school. So that meant Philip and I was going to be separate. We tried to see each other, you know, on the weekends from time to time, but 
you know, it's expensive taking buses home and things like that. So it, it, I found we were more apart than we were together. And then the fall semester started and I was taking classes and, you know, coming from a small school system like Highland Park, Michigan, to go to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where you had lecture halls of three, 400 kids, and they didn't look like me, if you <laughs> know what I mean. It definitely created um, a lot of anxiety at the time, although I didn't know I was going through anxiety, but um, the classes were difficult. I found myself dropping a lot of classes that I had signed up. Like Philip, you know, you go into the counselor's office, you see them once or twice a year, this is the handbook, this is the course catalog, you pick your classes based upon where you are, and you take them. It's no, well, can you take it, or what is your ability, just take it. And I, I, I will break in just for a minute here, because part of also, if I say the, um, the fall of my experiences in college, was the way I picked my courses. This is definitely not a spoiler alert, but this is a, a beware that, and, and perhaps they know it by now, but back when I was coming up, I figured if I got up at 5.30 to go to high school by 6.45 to catch the bus, surely I can take an 8 o'clock yeah. class. Shirley was my friend too, but come 8 o'clock. Like, You're calling hogs. <laughs> I mean, I did the same thing. It's like, heck, I get up every day, 6 o'clock. I'm going to take early morning classes, and then I'm going to go, you know, breeze out the rest of the afternoon. That, yeah. did, that happened maybe the first two weeks, and then progressively, <laughs> that 8 o'clock class. I don't even know what happened to that 8 o'clock class. But. And, and, and you got real good at, at, at counting, okay, how many weeks do I have before I can drop this thing? Exactly. And not, not exactly. affect my GPA. So I'm telling so. you. But, yeah, I was I was struggling, finan- uh, not financially, I was struggling academically. Sure. I was a good student in high school, honor roll, honor society. But, again, I went to a big university, and they basically said, you're stupid. You know? <laughs> we'll take your money, <laughs> yeah, but and you're I wasn't stupid. I was used to hearing that. And then on top of that, like Philip was saying, the strain of our relationship. And, yeah. and I don't want to, everyone to get the wrong idea. Again, it wasn't physical. It wasn't always physical. No. But let's face it. I'm going to be honest with you. That tension was always there. Yes. Sure. God blessed us in terms of not going to that point where of no return, but Lord knows we got close enough and it became a strain. And and I had come to the decision, I cannot continue to do this anymore. Now, marriage was, was in the picture. We've talked about marriage. Right, right. Um, I brought up marriage and, and I think, it's not that Philip didn't want to get married, but he was like, I ain't got no job. I mean, how am I going to take care of her? <laughs> and I'm saying, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll figure it out as we go. <laughs> I had enough sense to recognize that, you know, yes, I love Tony. I wanted to marry her, but I needed to have some kind of way to take care of us. I've always, and maybe that's in, and um, it's been more, I've seen the way my father interacted as being a provider. I wanted to do the same thing only because that's what I saw. I saw men who provided for their family. And so while I was a hard worker, um, me working at Kmart for 433 an hour, you know, <laughs> that, that ain't going to get it. it. And but that I wasn't had, even full time. You know? I had high hopes. Yeah, yeah she but did. But it, it got to a point where, again, as Philip was, my, my grades were suffering. And I had, to, I had to make a break, so I thought. So I called him up one day and I said, you know what? 
this is not working for me anymore. I, I've got to, to cut you loose because it's not going to work anymore. And so I guess you guys are going to have to wait to find out what happened. So we're going to end it here. But believe me, <laughs> it didn't stop there. No, it didn't. So we're going to pick up in the next episode um, what happened between November of 1981 and October of 1982. But you gotta stay tuned. This episode was produced and edited by Miss Kay Simone. Cover graphics by Indefinite. Music by Miss Kay Simone. So until next time, I'm Phil Bugs. And I'm Tony Bugs. Wishing you a wonderful week. <laughs>